0: Uh, I'm excited about today because uh, I show up on an Easter Sunday where Easter feels like Easter should, weather-wise. I've had many, many years recently where I would show up on Easter Sunday and it would be snowing, uh, and uh, on, on Christmas Eve services, it would be in the 70s. So this is really good. I like this a lot. I wish that we could keep that going, but we have traditions at holidays that we observe in order to make that particular day that we are observing the day. Christmas is the one that tends to have you know the most traditions associated with it. For instance in the Lynch household every December the 23rd every December the 23rd we watch White Christmas and by I mean it uh, it's a tradition in our household. Uh, What I'm really saying is that I force Julie every December the 23rd to watch White Christmas. That's just what we do. We can watch Any other Christmas movie, all week long, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. December the 23rd, White Christmas. Now, there's actually another movie that I associate with a holiday in order for that holiday to be that holiday, and it's Easter, as a matter of fact, and it is uh, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. Out of curiosity, does anybody watch that around this time of year? A few of you. A few of you watch it. Uh, Here's what I found out because I'm a nerd. Uh, I researched it, and it has shown on ABC every year but one since 1973, and it almost always falls Easter Passover weekend. This year, it was last week, and I didn't know about it until, like, Wednesday, so I missed it this year, and we're going to have to cancel Easter, I'm sorry, so... (laughs) But honestly, I don't know if you've seen it recently, but if you are to watch it, it's wildly overacted to the point of being ridiculous. I mean, absolutely. It's hard to imagine that people won Academy Awards for this thing, which they did. Very wildly overacted. Uh, I have noted that there are no Arab or Jewish faces in this story that is about the Arabs and the Jews. Um, And then the special effects are cheesy by modern standards. But most of all, from a preacher's perspective, there are some very questionable liberties uh, taken with the events as recorded by Scripture. And when you take the crazy acting and, and you know, it's all, you know, uh, American or European faces and the kind of embellishment of Scripture, it's easy to watch it and feel as if uh, the movie is depicting a mythological event But the event as it is presented in Scripture and as it has been preserved in the cultural and the religious memory of the Jewish people isn't a myth. They view it as a real event that is rooted in history, and they have always thought of it as being a real event. Christians like us have also viewed that event as having been rooted in history, of having actually happened. And in fact, our belief and its reality is so strong that we use it to shed light on another event that is thought of by many in the modern world to be something of a myth, the event that we are gathered here to celebrate today the event of Jesus rising from the grave. So what I want to do is I want to take a few minutes this morning to look at the actual event of the Exodus, of the people of Israel being led out of Egyptian slavery, and then I want us to see how the Bible actually ties the resurrection of Jesus to the Exodus. Uh, and so what I want to do is, is just read to you a brief summary of a larger section of Scripture. It'll be on your screens Exodus 12, 40 through 42, which is a summary of the Exodus itself. Here's what is recorded. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years on that very day, important to note here, it's not exactly 430 years to the day that is being mentioned. What is being said is that uh, on the exact day of the events in the verses preceding this. So don't think that they were there just so happened on the 430th anniversary of them coming, they left. That's not what it's saying. At the end of 430 years, on the very day that the events prior to this took place, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So that's the summary of a larger section about the Exodus. And there are three things that stand out to me when I read those verses. First, it stands out to me that the Jews had been there for a very long time, 430 years. I want you to think with me about how long years. Years actually is. The first English settlement in North America was the Jamestown Colony, established on May the 13th, 1607. That next month will be 416 years ago. So the Jews had been in Egypt for a length of time longer than the European history of our country. Like I said, they had been there for a very long long time. Long enough, I think, that it would have been hard to leave it behind. Because think about it, even though it was slavery, that's all they had known for generations. God knew His people well enough to know that even slavery is hard to put in the rearview mirror if you can't imagine what real freedom looks like. That was true when slavery was abolished in our country. When freedom came to uh, the slaves at the end of the Civil War, American slaves who had known nothing else essentially returned to a type of slavery in the sharecropping system. Why? Because even slavery is hard to put in the rearview mirror if you cannot imagine what real freedom looks like. But God had a plan, to get formally enslaved Jews to embrace a freedom that they thought would never happen to them. A few verses before this, in verse 33, the Egyptians looked at the ruin that God had visited on their country on behalf of the Jews and looked the Jews in the face and said very clearly, Get out. You're going to ruin us. The gist of what is meant by the word urgent in verse 33 was that the Egyptians were pressuring them to go, kind of like maybe some of you with family in this weekend. Really? You've got to leave? Man, we hate that for you. Maybe you've been that way. They're pressuring them to leave, but not against their will, obviously, but as a way God used to arrest the attention of people who had lived with no hope of deliverance, for so long, they had to be convinced that freedom was actually happening. And in the verses that follow, we see the haste with which the Jews packed up and left. When freedom finally came to slaves, they had been slaves so long, they had a hard time understanding that they could be free. That's the first thing that stands out to me about the exodus. The next thing that stands out to me is the change of identity that the exodus represented. Maybe when we were reading through, I read from a translation, an English translation, called the English Standard Version. You saw that word host on your screen. Uh, The the other translations that are out there might lean into the fact that that's really a military word. So you'll see it translated maybe in what you were reading as divisions or even army, which is my preferred translation of that word, but no one asked me. I'm on no translation committees, but but that's my preferred way of understanding the word host, army. So what are we seeing? We're seeing that the nation of slaves was leaving Egypt as an army. Now, They certainly wouldn't have been an intimidating army to our eye or anyone else's. The whole description of them leaving Egypt so quickly is actually a little comical. They were being shooed out of Egypt with their pots banging and their livestock neighing and whinnying and bleeding. Their children would have been crying. It looks a lot like maybe some of you leaving on vacation and, and what that looks like in your driveway. It was just chaos. They hadn't fought a battle, they had no chariots, they had no weapons, but the Lord's deliverance had changed them from slaves to an army. They were not yet what they would be. They were decades away from the military conquest of Canaan, but they were an army because the Lord's deliverance had changed them forever. That's the second thing. That stands out to me about the exodus final thing that stands out to me about the exodus was that they were to never forget what the lord had done and how the lord set it up for them to never forget it was the observance of the passover and a big chunk of exodus 12 details how they were to celebrate the event of the passover and the sacrifice and the eating of of the Passover lamb by way of remembering the night the Lord watched over them and passed over their sin uh, when judgment came to Egypt. So, three things. Enslaved people having a hard time really grasping that they could be free. The Lord delivering them and changing fundamentally their identity and then making sure that they would never forget what the Lord had done in delivering them are the things that stand out to me about the Exodus. And I'm not alone. Those things stood out to the writers of the New Testament, the part of the Bible explicitly about Jesus. And the reason it stood out to them in that way is because Jesus taught them to view the Exodus in just that way and the most obvious way he did it was on the last night of his life before his crucifixion mere hours before being nailed to the cross all four of the books that we call the gospels that uh, outline the events of Jesus' life in the new testament tell us that on the last night of christ's life he celebrated this passover With his disciples. But over the course of the meal, Jesus began to pull back layers of meaning that his disciples had never seen and the Jewish people had never seen until they would see a tomb being empty. Essentially, at the last Passover, remembering the Exodus, Jesus showed how it pointed to him and how the Exodus from Egypt would point to Easter. Jesus actually thought of his resurrection as the true exodus from slavery. In a miraculous event called the Transfiguration, recorded for us multiple places in the New Testament, but I'm thinking of Luke 9, the the prophet Elijah and Moses appear, again, miraculously with Jesus. And in verse 31, Luke kind of summarizes the conversation that they were having with one another at this event and we are told that in it, Jesus spoke of his departure. Now, that word departure, in Luke's language, is pronounced this way, exodon. He was speaking of his exodus. And Moses is present for this confirmation, as confirmation that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. His death ...and resurrection is the true exodus. And the passage of Scripture that really kind of drives that point home best... ...that makes the best connection between the death and resurrection of Jesus... ...and the exodus in the Old Testament is found in Romans 6, 4 through 7. It will be on your screens. You can follow along as I read. A man named Paul, writing the book of Romans, says... ...we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death... ...in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. For if we had been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be, here it is, enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, here's what I get. I, I get that in reading those words. For some of you, it says that's why I don't read the Bible, that seems hard to understand. I don't get what is being said here. But what they're doing simply is telling us that Christ's death brought the penalty of sin to nothing. In other words, if the if the wages, if the penalty for sin is death, that penalty's brought to nothing because Christ paid the penalty in full with His death. And His point is When we place our faith in Jesus Christ as having done what is necessary for our sin to be atoned for, the power of that death becomes our own. We are so closely identified with the death of Jesus in putting our faith in Him that His death becomes ours. And then what is said in the remainder of those verses is that just as we are so closely identified with the death of Jesus and so His Payment for sin becomes our payment for sin. His resurrection becomes ours as well. And we, through our faith in Jesus Christ, get to share in the same kind of resurrection, power over sin life that He demonstrates on Easter Sunday morning. It's painting for us a picture of the reality of our lives and our exodus from sin when we put our faith... In Jesus and his exodus from the grave. Here's what I want us to remember today the exodus of Jesus from the grave provides an exodus from our captivity to sin. It's gonna stay up there for the few brief moments that we have left. The exodus of Jesus from the grave provides an exodus from our captivity. Sin. I want you to think back through those three themes that I identified when we got going a little bit ago, but I want us to think about them in reverse order. First, in reverse order, they were to remember, the Jewish people were to remember what God had done in providing them deliverance every year. And that's what Jesus' followers do every year with Easter. We're remembering vividly, somberly, and gratefully the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The next theme of the Exodus is the fact that deliverance changed the Jews' identity forever. The slaves left Egypt an army. Not the army that they would be, but they were an army because the Lord's deliverance changed them forever and that's exactly what the verses from Romans that I just read are telling us that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ we don't immediately become what we ultimately will be but we're changed nonetheless the same man Paul in another passage of scripture said if anyone is in Christ they're a new creature the old things have passed away everything becomes new Listen to me. I want to make sure you hear this. I am not saying that the moment I gave my life to Jesus, I became perfect and sin was no longer a battle for me. But I am telling you that my identity was changed so profoundly in that very moment that I have a sinless future ahead of me. It may be when Jesus comes back and gets me and says, you're not ahead. But that future is the future of anyone who has given their life to Jesus. Our union with Christ is so strong that we have victory over sin in this life, which brings us to the last big theme that we saw in Exodus, which was the first thing I talked about. Sometimes we have been a slave to sin so long that we have a hard time really believing that we can be free. Now, I've done this long enough to know that every person here, preacher included, can keep stuff deeply, deeply hidden. I can show you the face that you need to show. You can show me the face that you need to show. But my guess is if we're honest before God, and I hope that we're all being honest before God, we can point to things in our lives that just feel like a ball and chain, that we will never, ever be free from them. For some of us, it may not be something that the rest of us would care that deeply about. For some of us, it may be something that we hope no one ever knows about. But we all have something that we just feel like, well, that's me. That's just me. You're not alone in that. Most of us know that a Jesus follower named Judas made arrangements To have Jesus arrested and set his crucifixion in motion and in fact it's a lot worse if you pay close attention to how it's recorded for us in scripture than what we even think about in in the the book of of Mark uh, Mark I think is the one who records uh, Judas going to the chief priest and saying hey what will you give me if I turn him over almost like he's thinking "Yeah, that's not worth it I won't do it But if you hit this threshold, if we can come to an agreement like he's selling a car, I'll give you Jesus. That's how bad it was. And so we think of his name as being synonymous with betrayal. But there were other betrayals that night, multiple betrayals. When the authorities came for Jesus, the other followers of Jesus... The other 11 of the 12 disciples scattered for their lives. In fact, John tells us, and he's probably talking about himself, that one of them, somebody reached out to grab him and they got his cloak and he was so scared he ran away with no clothes on. That's how terrified he was and that's how deep the betrayal was. Well, what do we know what happens after that? Well, we know that Judas had such a hard time believing that he could ever be forgiven that he took his own life. The others felt their sin just as deeply. We're told that a follower named Peter wept bitterly as he thought about how he had betrayed Jesus. So Judas and the rest of the disciples shared a common grief over a common failure. but had completely different outcomes. What made the difference? The resurrection made the difference. The resurrection convinced the remaining disciples that they no longer had to be defined by their sin, and in fact, they no longer had to remain slaves to it. And you, whatever that thing is, you don't either. There are three groups of people who are here today. I'm a part of the group that accepts That what we have sung about here today and what we have read about here today is true to the fullest extent, meaning that I not only believe that Jesus rose from the grave, I accept that I am a sinner worthy of judgment, but have placed my faith in the death of Jesus as payment for the judgment I deserved, and I've placed my faith in the resurrection of Jesus as the proof that my transformation from sinner to someone becoming like Jesus is fixed and will complete. I have been set free from a life of sin, and there are many people here today that join me in that conviction. The next group that is here this morning... Are those who are here at the imitation of a a family member or friend? Let's just call it what it is. You're being held hostage. Your lunch is being held hostage. If you don't come to church, you don't get to eat, and mama's not gonna be happy, and so you'd better come to church. I know you're out there. I know you're out there. And so you've listened quietly and politely. And you get that you're not perfect, but you don't consider yourself a sinner worthy of death, or whose offense is so great that it requires the death of someone else to be made right with God. If that's you, I want you to know I'm thrilled you're here, and I simply ask that you give what we've talked about here this morning some thought. In fact, I want to help you with that. Right now, give you permission. Mom's not going to get mad at you because the preacher said do it. If you're in that second group, Pull out your phone, go to Amazon. There is a book that you can buy on Amazon called Basic Christianity by John Stott. I checked it at seven this morning. It's $7.99. It can be there tomorrow. And it is a book that is written for people who are skeptical of the message and the events of Christianity to help them get a reasoned, simple way of of understanding and accepting that it is true. It's a small little book. Again, the name of the book is Basic Christianity by John Stott, $8. If you can't afford it, uh, Pastor John is our new executive pastor, and he will authorize reimbursement. (laughs) There you go. I don't know if he knows that or not, but he just did. (laughs) But in all seriousness, there's a final group that's here. And like the first group, You believe all this happened, and you get, at the deepest core of your being, that you're a sinner worthy of judgment, but like people who had been slaves for 430 years, you can't believe, A, that Jesus would accept you, B, that you can overcome that sin. If that's you, the resurrection we celebrate this morning, again that you likely believe happened, is meant to shoo you out of slavery to sin. It proves that Jesus' deliverance is more powerful than any slavery we might feel to sin. It tells us unequivocally that we can be set free It lets us know that Jesus is calling out to us today to remind us of what he has done so that we can be set free from sin, and that's my prayer for you today, that you will be. You say, how do I do it? It is a simple declaration that has profound implications. The simple declaration is, I'm a sinner, and only Jesus can save me. But the profound implications of that declaration are that you're doing more than simply receiving from Jesus forgiveness so that you can go to heaven. You're saying to Jesus, you've got it, all of it, all that I am, all that I ever will be from here on out. I am not saying some kind of magic words like some kind of Harry Potter potion. I am telling you, That everything that I am and everything that I believe and everything that I ever hope to be, I am vesting completely in you. And if you say go, I go. If you say jump, I jump. I'm yours from here on out. That's what you get in exchange for the forgiveness. You get a life rather than being slave to the taskmaster's sin, you get a life Where you are slaved to the good shepherd, Jesus, and following him. And he wants that for you today. And if you want that today, I want to help you. Join me in prayer, please. I want to ask that everyone just kind of still themselves and, and, and bow your head and close your eyes, not look around. And I want you, if you're a part of that last group here this morning who accept that all of this happened but can't accept that you can be forgiven but desperately, desperately want to be. I want you right now to make that simple declaration to Jesus in the quietness of your own heart in prayer that has profound implications. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I know only you can save me, and I give everything to you from here on out. You don't have to know a bunch of theology to say that. You you don't have to have a seminary degree to make that kind of declaration. I've got family members who have made that kind of declaration that don't have a junior high education, much less a seminary education. It's just a simple declaration that Jesus, I'm a sinner, only you can save me. And everything about me is yours from here on out. If that's what you're willing to do, cry out right now to God with that simple declaration. And if you've done that, I want you to know that you can come see me, Pastor Jonathan, our campus pastor. Ryan Hudnell's one of our elders. He led you in Scripture reading earlier. Pastor John, people on your pew, family members, can talk to you about what you need to do next. Let us know. Let us help you. Start coming out of Egypt as the person that God has saved you to be.